Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Gardet. It's Thursday, August 11th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. STAT published a lengthy story on Jim Wilson, a pioneering scientist synonymous with the rise of gene therapy and the toxic, abusive workplace staffers say he presided over. We'll talk about how the story came to be and what its implications are for the culture of science. We'll discuss the latest news in life sciences, including a multi-billion dollar deal, a novel approach to treating schizophrenia, and what Senate drug pricing legislation means for the drug industry. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley of STAT. Thanks for listening. It's an exciting time for biopharma. We're seeing real potential in new treatments, but they require big innovation. Linda Matiasson from Cytiva's nucleic acid therapeutics team is here to tell us more. Thanks, Angus. mRNA vaccines, cell-free, CAR-T, and more are changing or poised to change lives. At Cytiva, we are innovating production of small batch personalized medicines. They are creating new hope for treating cancers and other diseases. Visit Cytiva.com slash advanced therapeutics to learn how we are working with customers to bring their ideas to reality. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com forward slash advanced dash therapeutics. The proud tradition of Merger Monday continued apace this week with the news that Pfizer would acquire a company called Global Blood Therapeutics. Adam, you covered this for us and and spoke recently, but also at length in the past with the CEO of Global Blood Therapeutics. What are the ins and outs of this transaction? Yeah, Damien, everyone loves a good Merger Monday. Uh, And yeah, we had Pfizer buying Global Blood, $5.4 billion. uh, Pretty, so, you know, a decent sized deal. The centerpiece of this deal is a treatment for sickle cell disease that Global Blood uh, secured approval for back in 2019. They've also have, uh, they have a pipeline of other uh, potential medicines to treat sickle cell disease. And and so what was really interesting here is, you know, Pfizer obviously is the world's uh, largest pharmaceutical company. Uh, they have in the past tried to develop treatments for sickle cell disease, which, you know, is, uh, is a disease that is, you know, kind of, I don't want to say it's, it's ignored, but it's, it's you know, it, it's been something that's kind of not been a big focus of, of kind of the pharmaceutical world until maybe more recently. And so, you know, this deal, I think, signifies, uh, you know, Pfizer are really kind of getting into sickle cell. Um, you know, when I spoke to Ted Love uh, on Monday about the deal, what he what what he said to me was, you know, the look the company was not for sale. Um, Pfizer came to them uh, interested in this acquisition and and really made a commitment to uh, to Ted and to Global Blood. They wanted to take these treatments and they wanted to go everywhere in the world where sickle cells. Uh, sickle cell disease patients live. And and that is, you know, in the sub-Sahara, that's in South America, that's in India. These are places where you don't normally hear pharmaceutical companies talk about because it's it's areas of the world where um, it's hard to make money on drugs uh, in, in those areas. But but Pfizer is really committed to this, Ted told me, and um, it was something that, that that's really important to Global Blood and was important to him. And so um, the deal got struck. So zooming out in broader market terms, obviously any 
major transaction where a large drug company buys a smaller one is perceived as a positive among people who are reeling from the continuing decline in the valuations of small drug companies, of biotech companies. But I thought this transaction was interesting, somewhat similar to an Amgen deal last week in that they're not massive numbers, but compared to what we had seen earlier in 2022 with these sort of marriages of convenience where companies would sell at a premium maybe to their recent stock price, but that was actually below their valuations as recently as December. This deal and a few other things either rumored or recently reported suggest something of a return, if not to normalcy, then at least a pivot away from the doldrums of the early part of 2022. Yeah, I mean, Global Blood Therapeutics has kind of been on the M&A radar for a while. And I, I believe it's like there was indications that this wasn't the only offer that they received, certainly like to, you know, market a, a sickle cell pill abroad is a really big task for a, a you know, relatively small biotech company. Um, I, yeah, I'm curious what led to this finally happening now and what like how Pfizer sweetened the deal compared to, you know, some of the other interested parties. Um I don't know. I just Ted Love has the Midas touch. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remark. It's true, Allison. I remarked to him, and and I think I said this on Twitter. You know, Ted was an executive at Onyx Pharma back when Amgen bought Onyx. I think that was in two thousand and thirteen. Uh, you know, obviously now he's the CEO of of Global Blood, and it's being acquired for for five plus billion dollars by Pfizer. And he he actually is a director. He's on the board uh, of Seijin, which I think, as we've said and mentioned in previous episodes, and people know, is seems to be a target, uh, a takeout target for Merck. You know, in the range of forty billion plus dollars. That deal has not been uh, announced or signed yet, but you know, there's speculation that that's going to happen. So yeah, he's like the M&A man. Well, and this wasn't the only exciting thing that we we launched the week with. Karuna um, had some really exciting data on schizophrenia. Um, I mean, do you two want to kind of tell us about what happened there and what it means? Yeah, I wrote about that. I, I, I was busy this week. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, schizophrenia obviously is a, is a really debilitating mental illness. Uh, you know, there is a host of drugs that treat uh, schizophrenia today. Uh, they all uh, are pretty effective, but they come with some pretty uh, pretty awful side effects. Um, so what was interesting about the Corona Therapeutics data and the drug that they're developing is it's, you know, it's an entirely new way of, of targeting and treating uh, schizophrenia, uh, you know, that again, a, a disease that sort of calling out for new ways of uh, new methods of treatment. So I think that's what generated the most excitement here. Yeah, it, and it certainly not only generated excitement for Karuna, but had a read through for a couple of other uh, biotech companies. You know, Neuroquin, um, Numora, which is the big uh, psychiatric drug startup um, that Arch you know launched last year. They licensed two compounds earlier this year that operate in a similar manner. These these muscarinic receptors, and Cerevel also has muscarinic receptor. Uh, programs on its pipeline. And they actually just this morning announced that they are going to be, you know, raising $250 million in a stock sale. So I, th I think it's safe to say like other other companies are kind of, you know, capitalizing 
on this exciting news for Karuna. Yeah, muscarinic is a, a word we've all learned this week uh, in the biotech world. It's got a lot of buzz now, is and that refer, that refers to you know specific uh, receptors in the brain and, and elsewhere in the body. Uh, you know, and again, it's different. And that's that's kind of the new way of treating uh, schizophrenia is by targeting these muscarinic receptors uh, instead of you know what we tend to think of with current antipsychotics, which are you know really kind of go after dopamine and serotonin receptors. I appreciated that Cerevel stock offering you mentioned, Allison, because there's a time-honored tradition in biotech to raise money within a day, if not within hours, of announcing positive news that sends your stock price up. But Cerevel is in not uncharted territory, but interesting territory of doing exactly that when someone else has good news that sends your stock price up, which is Probably somewhat a sign of the times, the market conditions that we mentioned, but also just, you know, if the iron is hot, uh, developing drugs is a cash intensive business. So why not? And Damien, mentioning good news, there's just been a lot of good news in biotech these days. And uh, stocks are responding to that, which is kind of a, a turnaround from what the doom and gloom of, of <laughs> earlier this year. Yeah, I checked and, you know, the, the XBI biotech index is still down about 20% for 2022, but it was not too long ago down closer to 50%. So obviously the recovery, if that's not too strong a term, of the past month or so is something that people will willfully accept. And I mean, I think the, you know, there are some macro phenomenal issues as always that that affect these things and the broader market in general. But between Karuna, Alnylam, which we spoke about at length last week, um, it just helps when the drugs work in, in like the most like vulgar terms possible. Like on some level, the biotech market trades with, you know, animal spirits, blah, blah, blah. But on uh, at, at core, these are companies trying to make new medicines. And when they succeed, even incrementally, that does seem to be a rising tide that raises everyone. I loved seeing, I think it was Brad Longcar uh, tweeted the other day, um, He's been doing these like, you know, here's the positive news in biotech tweets uh, for the last several months. And I think he kind of cautiously, you know, optimistically said, maybe I can stop this tweet thread. Maybe is this a is this a sign that things are getting better, that the tide is turning? Finally, on last week's episode, we spoke at length about Senate Democrats' potential to pass legislation that would allow Medicare to negotiate certain drug prices. They did exactly that on Sunday, and joining us for a brief update is Stat Washington correspondent Rachel Kors, who spent the weekend with all of our friends in the United States Senate. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Rachel, people can and should read your in-depth coverage of what's actually in the bill. But I wanted to ask you about an in-the-weeds provision that has gotten a lot of attention. Uh, Under this legislation, small molecule drugs, and those are drugs like the blood thinner Eliquis, for example, would be subject to price negotiation after nine years on the market. But biologics, like, for example, Avi's Humira, would have a period of 13 years. What's the thinking about that difference? Yeah, so it kind of surprised me when this issue blew up because I think these kind of year um, durations were set back in November, but there wasn't this huge outcry then. But now as this is neared passage, it's definitely blown up a bit. So just as a reminder, the FDA's exclusivity periods for small molecule drugs and biologics are different. Small molecule drugs only get five years of exclusivity and biologics get 12. So I think that's kind of the root of kind of the differential here in the negotiation timeline. And just, yeah, again, to clarify, so the the bill would allow negotiation after nine years, which is a four-year extension after exclusivity for small molecule drugs, and biologics would only get one extra year um, after their exclusivity period has expired 
to, um, you know, enter into that negotiation uh, phase of kind of the drugs pricing life cycle. So I think it's, I think there are arguments out there. And, you know, I saw there was a great piece by um, Scott Gottlieb and Ben Eppolito over at AEI about kind of the idea that, you know, small molecule drugs are generally cheaper. Uh, so it it's good to incentivize them in any way possible. But it's certainly not the only policy out there that's incentivizing the development of biologics versus small molecule drugs. So it doesn't like really change the incentives that are out there all that much. So this is clearly a sentiment that has been in discussion and has been around for some time with small molecules and biologics. What about the text as a whole? Is this set in stone? Are we? Is this what's likely to be passed into final law? Or are there things that could happen between now and this legislation reaching President Biden's desk? Yeah, so this legislation is pretty baked at this point. Um, there was a fight on the House floor back in November over these, you know, the negotiation timelines where House moderates rebelled and actually got an extra year of um, kind of non-negotiation for biologics. But I'm we're not expecting that to happen again. Moderates have fallen in line. And the problem is, if the House changes the bill, then it would have to go back to the Senate again and just rounding up 50 senators for the Democrats and, you know, having the vice president there. It's just a whole rigmarole that is just very unlikely to happen. So I have no expectation that this bill is going to change at all. The vote is set for sometime on Friday. So that's kind of when that's expected. And then after that, the president would sign it. It's done. So I I don't think we're expecting a lot of changes here. Well, Rachel, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. There is no way to tell the story of gene therapy without mentioning Jim Wilson. For more than three decades, Wilson has been a celebrated trailblazer in the quest to make medicines that can correct genetic defects and potentially cure diseases, and his work has attracted hundreds of millions of dollars for his longtime employer, the University of Pennsylvania. But behind all the superlatives and academic awards, actually working for Wilson can be a nightmare. Stat published a story this week based on interviews with more than 35 current and former employees of Wilson's lab, describing an abusive workplace culture marked by bullying, harassment, and a prevailing sense, as one former recruiter put it, that employees were just disposable to Wilson and his inner circle. It's a damning read that I recommend you read, and you're welcome to pause this podcast to do so if you have not yet. But it has implications not just for this one celebrated researcher, but also for the upper echelons of science where headline names and the large sums of money that they bring in are often prized at the expense of the people who do the actual work of research. So let's talk about it on the podcast. You've heard from two of that story's authors, Allison and Adam, and we are now joined by the third, Stats Jason Mast. Jason, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. So before we get into the details and the many implications of your story, Could you explain a little just how seismic a figure Jim Wilson is in gene therapy research? Yeah, I think kind of as you were saying, Damien, Jim Wilson is one of those rare people who, for both good reasons and bad, is kind of synonymous with his fields. You couldn't tell the history of gene therapy without him. In the 90s, he was kind of the leading young hotshot figure at this head of this really buzzy field that was full of 
kind of young hotshots. Um, he was probably the leading figure um, running this massive institute, 250 people at Penn. They thought they were going to cure all these kinds of different conditions that they were going to get into um, human trials and, and, and have approvals um, and, and all this stuff. We're going to change medicine, basically. Um, and then in 1999, um, in a, one of the trials that he was running and, and are, are helping to run in a therapy that he had built, um, the, a patient um, tragically passed away, an 18-year-old relatively healthy guy from, uh, from Arizona. Then um, he's career kind of ended up in tatters. Um, they start, they shut down his whole center. He was investigated by the FTA, by HHS, by, um, Penn. It was a, a lawsuit, all these different things. Um, and the field kind of fell apart as a result, um, and, and narrowed to this very marginal thing as kind of companies and academics and the NIH pulled back and out of fear of it's kind of safety effects. And then in what had kind of been one of the great redemption stories in um, biomedicine, he really um, went back to work, discovered these kinds of new technology that can make the, the therapies a lot safer, um, and um, then worked on making those therapies, those uh, that new technology available in a way that really regenerated the fields and led to all these new sort of companies launching and these new therapies, including one that's now approved based on his tech. Um, and so, and he had really rebuilt that big center into this 300 person machine that like, um, I think to the to many in the outside worlds was doing all this great science and partnering with all these great companies and um, was just on the cutting edge of, of, of medicine. And so that brings us, you know, basically to the present where we have your story and its revelations about what was actually going on within that lab after his resurgence. How did you first get on to what would become the story that published this week? Yeah, you know, here we have to give credit to uh, the student journalists at the University of Pennsylvania. You know, back uh, last November, uh, the Daily Pennsylvanian, which is, the again, the student paper at UPenn, they published a story, the first story that I had read about uh, about these allegations of workplace abuse and and bullying and harassment that were going on uh, at Jim Wilson's gene therapy program. That's the research center that he runs at UPenn. And Damien, if you go, if you think back to last November, uh, you and I were kind of neck deep working on a story about Biogen. And so I had, you know, I had read the the UPenn, I had read the Daily Pennsylvania story and and kind of just like put it aside and said, you know, this is interesting. Uh, maybe to follow up, but I'm really busy right now. And honestly, I kind of forgot about it. Uh, and then in April, just this past April, the Daily Pennsylvanian published another story, uh, which looked deeper into the allegations at the gene therapy program in Jim, under Jim Wilson, uh, including the first reporting on an investigation, actually, that had been conducted by uh, the University of Pennsylvania into into what uh, was going on in Jim Wilson's lab. Um, and that's kind of where the story, that's kind of where we got into it. Yeah, we. I remember having conversations at that time looking at, I mean, what were very impressive articles. Um, I was not <laughs> that talented of a student journalist myself. Um, and But looking at those articles and kind of wondering, you know, how much of this goes all the way up to the food chain to Jim Wilson um, and trying to get an answer to that. You know, was this something that he was oblivious to or was this something that 
was kind of fostered in this very large academic lab. And I mean, through our reporting, got the sense that it was very much the latter. You know, several times employees saying that they went to Jim with complaints about things that were happening in the lab and and he just kind of turned a cold shoulder to it. Yeah, and I think, you know, the the the, the stories that were in the in the student paper, the Daily Pennsylvania, they didn't completely really they didn't really focus on Wilson as much. And and I think Alex and I looked at the stories and said, you know, if, if there's something here for us to pursue, obviously we want to build on that. We don't want to just repeat what the student paper did. Uh, and we want to look at this uh, through the lens of Jim Wilson. He, he is the like like Jason said, you know, he's you know really one of the most prominent uh, gene therapy scientists in the country, if not the world. And then also, I think the other thing that Allison and I really thought about in the early days and then Jason, when Jason came on uh, to help us with the reporting was the implications of all this. Like, you know, was this just an example of a guy being a jerk or, you know, was this impacting the, the work that they were doing there. Ultimately, we found out that the answer to that question was yes. And I think that made the story much more consequential. Yeah, I want to get to the implications, but also I think it's probably worth zooming in a little bit. I mean, there, there are phrases like toxic culture, abusive workplace that um, I think could have a multitude of definitions to people. You guys, obviously, your story is based on all of the documents from the internal investigation, multiple drafts of it, emails, interviews with more than uh, two dozen people, three dozen people. Um, so what do we mean? Like, what was it actually like for these employees to report to work every day at Jim Wilson's lab in Philadelphia? I would say that the sense that we got from our reporting was that people were report- you know, going into work. It was very long hours, very strenuous work. And depending kind of who your manager was, um, you could either be, you know, have kind of like that could be the the most of it. Or there were certain managers in that organization that were also then very, you know, verbally abusive. Jim Wilson himself was was known to yell at people in the lab. We've we've heard that from multiple people that he, you know, if he was mad, he would scream at them. Um, and really a a sense that the work, you know, just getting things done was all important, even if the projects themselves were changing very frequently. Uh, quite a few people mentioned to us that, you know, deadlines would kind of come and go and projects you would, you know, one week you were working on this and the next week you'd be working on that, depending on what Jim kind of thought was the best thing to be working on at the time. But that that changing, that that uh, that structure in the lab led to a lot of disorganization, too. To what Allison was saying, like, what it was like to work. I mean, we talked to folks who, like, after they left GTP, they they were shocked that, like, you know, they would work at places where, oh, you can actually make gene therapies. You can actually do these kinds of things without having people work um, 24 hours a day, every weekend, every night, every Thanksgiving. Like, we saw folks who, like, every single holiday, um, not like it was an exception to work on every single holiday there was someone basically working because there was some project that had not been properly planned. It was a place that like a lot of people found very, very abusive. Yeah, we found 
you know, that as a result of a lot of this, that there was an incredible amount of turnover. People were leaving as fast as they were being hired. And, you know, there, this, was a, this was a program that was growing incredibly fast. And this was not just something that we heard from, you know, junior scientists or, you know, people who were early on in their career. We, you know, the story features uh, stories of, of people who had, you know, decades of industry experience who, who basically left the biopharma world to go work at the gene therapy program who were recruited by Wilson and who didn't last there very long because of this this abusive environment. Anyone who questioned Wilson and, and sort of how he was spinning out companies, raising lots of money from outside investors to fund different gene therapy startups that all became sort of intertwined with the scientific research that was being done at the gene therapy program, where to the extent that people really didn't know who they were working for. Were they working for a pen and were they doing academic science or were they working to serve uh, Jim Wilson and his startups, and you know, essentially helping him make more money from from the from the work he was doing outside of Penn, and it became very mixed up, and and uh, that sort of just contributed to a lot of the turmoil there. So, one of the things I thought was fascinating with your story is that zooming out, it does fit into I think something people are coming around on, which you know, in in the light of what took place with Eric Lander, the famed scientist at the White House who was revealed to have, well, who eventually stepped down after very similar complaints of running what people described as a toxic workplace. In both cases, Lander, Wilson, these are, this is like paragons of big science, for lack of a better term. The kind of people who, uh, you know, get a lot of adulating coverage and maybe most importantly to their institutions are able to corral a lot of funding, which can be scarce in science. But we learn more and more that, you know, that might not be entirely tenable with research, and there's a fascinating dynamic in your story in which people seem to agree that Wilson's concern for patients was earnest. He had this emotional connection, and, and a lot of his hard-driving ways were in his mind because patients were desperately waiting for treatments that the lab might create. But as you guys pretty expertly detail, that led to shoddy planning, rushed work, a stressful environment that seems to, or demonstrably, delayed the progress of those actual things. I don't really know how to end this with a question, but I feel like that's that's sort of a through line in your reporting that really resonated with me with recent history. You know, like we said, we talked to close to three dozen people and so many of the people that we spoke to were really inspired by Jim Wilson's passion for patients and for developing these treatments for, you know, for, for some pretty awful diseases. And, and I think that's why that's why they went to work there. You know, either they went to work there like out of grad school as, you know, after after getting degrees and, and this was the start of their career or for people who had been in industry for a while and, and thought that this was this was their calling. Um, and I think that was kind of one of the more heartbreaking things to hear from people than we did speak to them was how disillusioned they were uh, and how sort of beaten down they were where, you know, what they thought this job was going to be just wasn't. I mean, we spoke to someone who, who quite frankly told me, you know, they thought that this was going to be their dream job. And it turned out to be kind of a nightmare. There was one person we spoke to who was like, you know, maybe Wilson wasn't actually like a day-to-day manager, um, which he, he is and, and tries to do, and just like had a separate job, like as a kind of figurehead funding person, like that would actually um, be more amenable. Um, there was another person we spoke to who I was like, so it sounds like what you're telling me is that most like generous interpretation is that Wilson is brilliant, incredibly hardworking, genuinely cares about patients, but maybe should not be in charge of a 300 person 
organization or center. So your story published on Monday, it's we're recording this on Thursday. What kind of reactions have you seen publicly and privately from from people in and around this world? The reaction has been pretty uniform. People, I mean, people obviously know Wilson from the Gelsinger incident. And, you know, he he still has, he's always held mixed opinions in the biopharma world. But in terms of this story, they thought this was a really important story to tell and they were really glad that it was being told. These considerations, as you pointed out, Damien, like the era of kind of like big ego and big science has drawn a lot of debate and and conversation in the last couple of years. And, you know, Wilson is one of the more preeminent features, you know, figures in that that conversation now. Um, and for for, you know, Wilson, Penn and you know, some of the other figures in the story, they did acknowledge to us some that there were shortcomings in the way that that lab was run and that they are trying to do better to improve the environment in the lab. Well, it's a wonderful story, and I hope, you know, as I mentioned, that people read it if they have not already uh, on statnews.com. And Jason, thank you for joining us to talk about it. Yeah, thank you so much, Damien. I appreciate it. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke, and our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and tell us if you heard Damien's cat in the background <laughs> of this recording, because we did. <laughs> you can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, you can leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. And now, Damien's monologue. <laughs> or open curtain. <clears throat> okay. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs>